Now he moves right on in to the 10th chapter. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there unto perfect. Now that is Hebrews 10 verse 1. Now he continues the same subject. Right on into the 10th chapter now, we're talking about Christ's sacrifice for sin, you see. In other words, what he is saying here, as he ended the ninth chapter, if Christ had failed to save in his death at his first coming, there'd be nothing afterward but judgment. And my friend today, if you reject Jesus Christ, you know that your funeral is going to be the saddest funeral that you possibly can have. I've had the funeral of all kinds of people, and I've had the funeral of unsaved people, and the family there was unsaved, and there's no sorrow like that. And believe me, that's the way it should be. <laughs> this poor dear wife, she was almost an alcoholic, Husband died. She leaned on him a great deal. That was down in Texas. I don't mind locating that. And she came to me after I tried to give a message, not a comfort, but the gospel to them. And she came to me there, and she looked up at me. She says, is there any hope at all? Well, I said, there's a hope for you. There's a hope for you. None for him whatsoever. He was a blasphemer. He had told me that he had no use for the church. He had no use for Jesus Christ. He had no use for anything Christian. Nothing ahead but judgment. Now, he goes on here and he says, For the law, having a shadow, having a shadow, good things to come, and not the very image of the things. Now, the law served a good purpose. It was a picture. It taught Israel. And that's the reason that they were judged as they were judged. How many times the Lord Jesus said, "What well, I've gathered you, and you would not. Now, if you don't believe that judgment has really been a severe one, go to Jerusalem. Walk around the streets of old Jerusalem. Walk around in the area where we know that he moved, but all that's covered with debris today. Why? Because that city's been judged. How many times he said, I've gathered you. Why? They had the Old Testament. They had the pictures. My ancestors were up young in Germany. Boy, were they heathen and pagan. And those over in Scotland, they were dirty and filthy. And then the gospel came, and thank God some of them trusted Christ. And I had a grandfather on my father's side that apparently was a godly man. I don't know, but I'm thankful for him, you see. Thankful for him. That gave us Gentiles a break, you see. That gave us a break. He gave them the picture book, Old Testament, just ABC book for a bunch of babes, you see. That's the reason so many today miss it. These theologians come to it, and they have to find something profound in it. It's a picture book. He's just trying to tell all of us little babies down here that he died for us. And it's just as simple as that, friends. He died for us. The law having a shadow of good things to come. And you notice that the law had to do with the 
tabernacle and the sacrifices. This idea today you can separate the ceremonial law from the Ten Commandments. You're just entirely wrong. If you want to get on the Ten Commandments, then you make your little tabernacle, start raising goats and sheep because you're going to need them. But he finished all of that. Now we're on a different basis, a higher plane today, and he wants to bring joy in your life. And the law never promised joy. There was thunder and lightnings, and people were smitten dead at the giving of the law. But when Jesus came, he died, that we might have life today. Now, verse 2, "...for then would they not have ceased to be offered." You see, it's interesting that when Jesus died, it was just a few years that that temple was destroyed. And Israel has not been able to put up another temple. They got a little miniature at the Holy City Hotel in Jerusalem over on the new side. But they don't have a temple today. Doesn't look like they're going to get one soon either. You see, that ended it. For then would they have not ceased to be offered. They don't offer now. And very frankly, I spoke to a very delightful Jewish guy, hair as gray as it could be. He said it was turned gray when he was 19. He heard that his father and mother, sister and brothers had been killed in Russia. And he'd been gray ever since. Delightful fellow. He took me around to show me this model. And I asked him, and maybe I shouldn't, but I said, where is the brazen altar? And he looked at me. Oh, he said, you know, today we've come past that. We have an ethical religion. A lot of folk today got an ethical religion. But my friend, (laughs) that bloody sacrifice was necessary that you and I might have forgiveness of sins. And so he says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience for sin. But in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance again made of sins every year. So that actually what those sacrifices did was to remind these people that it wasn't complete, or they wouldn't have to come back and do it every day. And they were a shadow. In the Greek, it's skion. That is just a hazy outline. And an image, a kona, we get our word icon from that, just a likeness. And the old sacrifices were shadow, never substance. And my friend, you can't live in the shadow of a house, you need the house. Again, we don't have to repeat this if it's complete. You know, if a man that says, you know, I'm cured of a disease, and he's taking medicine every hour, that man's not cured, friends. You've got to keep it up. My doctor gave me medicine for diverticulosis. And I said, will it cure me? He said, no. It's just when you have an attack, you probably have it the rest of your life. So I keep taking it. I'm not cured. I know that. And when you bring these sacrifices every year, you're not cured of sin. It doesn't answer. It's Christ made one sacrifice. Now, he goes into that. For in those sacrifices, verse 3 now, there's a remembrance Again made of sins every year. Here we go again. We're going right through the great day of atonement every year. What does it mean? That the answer hasn't arrived yet. But yonder on Golgotha, when he cried out, to tell us thy it is finished, my friend, it was finished. And 
Next year, there wasn't any need for a day of atonement. In fact, he's going to say that that's to trod underfoot the blood of Jesus if you try to go through a sacrifice today. Now, we come to something that I think is tremendous here. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it's written of me to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin, thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that word for all is in italics, and it means once he died for your sins and my sins. Now, here is one of the most beautiful references you'll have in the Bible. And I want to take time for that because... I trust that we can be helpful to you in having the Word of God become very meaningful to you. Now, if you go back to the book of Exodus, and I'm turning there, the 19th chapter and the 20th chapter, 19th is preparation for the giving of the law. 20th chapter, you have the Ten Commandments given. Now, after that, God makes a gracious provision for sacrifices and altar goes right along with it. Then in chapter 21, there comes something that seems to be very much out of place. Having given the law, this is an interesting thing. It says, verse 1 of chapter 21 of Exodus, and I'm reading, Now these are the ordinances which thou shalt set before them. Listen to this. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. In other words, you couldn't have a slave of your own people for longer than six years. Seventh year, he's free. Verse 3, if he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he was married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. He shall go out by himself. But listen now. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Verse 6, Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear. That is, the lobe of the ear would be pushed against the doorpost and through with an awl, and an awl would run through the ear, and he shall serve him forever. And if you saw a man walking around like that, you know that he'd been given a wife and that he had paid the price of permanent servitude. Now, that's a tremendous law. Certainly, that's a lovely thing. But what's the meaning of it? Well, let's follow the meaning of it. We go over to the 40th Psalm. And in the 40th Psalm, I read verse 6. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened, or dig, just like you have back there about the servant. 
burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book that's written of me. Now, you have that quotation here in Hebrews, and it is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's one of the most beautiful pictures you have in the Scripture. The Lord Jesus came to this earth, and he grew to manhood. Thirty years of age, he began his ministry. And he could come to the end of that ministry and say, Which of you convicteth me of sin? He was wholly harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He could have stepped off this earth any day that he wanted to back to heaven and left this earth in sin and left you and me in the slavery of sin. But you see, he said, I love, I love those sinners. And God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So instead of saying his eerie day, he says, a body hast thou given me. A body for what? Well, he died on the cross, friends. He died on the cross. And we're told here, verse 10 of Hebrews 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. He could have left this earth without dying because nobody could convict him of sin. And he could have gone to heaven without dying. But he'd had to leave you and me down here. Even God had had to leave us down here. And back to that law, the servant, he can serve just six years, but he's now going out free. But the master gave him a bride. And the Lord Jesus Christ has been given the church. You remember in the Lord's Prayer, he said, they are mine. And he says to the Father, you gave them to me. He died for him. He died for you and for me because he loves us. And he had to pay that price. But the interesting thing, he didn't stay in slavery. He went back. And he's going to take us out of the slavery of sin someday. How wonderful it is. How wonderful it is. And he alone could do that. There's a green hill far away without a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. What a picture we have here. Now we are told in verse 11, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Oh, it covered them. It was an atonement, but never could take away sin at all. And all that offering every year did it, just a reminder that we are sinners and that the sin question had never been settled. But now verse 12 of chapter 10 of Hebrews, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He sat down, why? Because he's tired? No. Because he's not going to do anything? No. His work is finished. One sacrifice for sins forever. Now, notice, from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. He's just waiting. A few more to be saved. We pray, oh, come on, Lord Jesus. But he says, no, we're going to wait because I want to save some more. And he's given you an opportunity 
friend, if you're not saved, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now, one offering does what many offerings could not do. Now, if Christ cannot save you and keep you, then God has no other way to save and keep you. The Lord, even God's run out of ways of saving you. This is the only way. Whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us. For after that, he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I'll put my laws into the hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now, as we've seen before in the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant now with Israel. You see, he's not through with Israel, friends. If you read your Bible, you'll see that. But now if you're going to read some of these new theologians who come up with some philosophical explanation, then you're going to be way out your left field with probably a logical argument. But you see, we're not following logic here. We're following the Word of God. And I think if you'll follow it through, it makes sense that it is logical. Now, friends, here in this section of Hebrews, we are seeing the greatest division that's being made in the Word of God. The fact of the matter is, it's like a Grand Canyon that is being put now down between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And let's remember, God gave both of them. But now he says this, and I'm going to drop back to verse 9 to pick this up. He says, "...he taketh away the first," that is, the first covenant, "...that he may establish the second." Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ died upon the cross... That was something that happened. The veil was rent in twain. No longer were men to come by the sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats. But now the Lord Jesus has done something in his own body for you and me. Verse 10, "...by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once." Now, not for all. It was for all. But the emphasis, he did it one time so that sacrifices are to end. And it's been interesting that ever since the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. by Titus, there has been no bloody sacrifice offered there. And there's not one being offered today, and the prospects for one to be offered is very dim at the present moment. So that he took away the first, that he might establish the second. Now, I do not know how to overemphasize this, because I don't think it can be overemphasized. You see, with that first covenant, there were certain rules and regulations given. That old covenant was made up of a law, and a law that had a great many details. In fact, the ceremonial law, all the details that had to do with sacrifices. And then there were the Ten Commandments. And then there were other commandments that were given. And they were rules 
And you know that the characteristic of human nature is that appeals to human nature, rules and regulations. Actually, men love rules and regulations. You see, they feel it's easy to obey rules. And that's the reason that so many people say today, oh, the Sermon on the Mount is my religion. They really don't know what it says or what it means, but they like it because they got rules there and they try to kid themselves in that they follow them. And the whole history of man will prove this. It demonstrates it. And all these cults and isms and religions that are springing up today are made up of that. Rules and regulations. You follow a certain little ritual. Now, the thing today is that we're under an altogether different system. And the very interesting thing is, Paul had mentioned this before when he wrote to the Corinthians. He said to them in verse 6, of Second Corinthians chapter 3. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, or the New Covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Now, some strange individuals have come up with a novel interpretation that this means you ought not to study the Bible and that it's the Spirit that giveth life, and that the letter here means the Word of God. Do you know that that's not what Paul's talking about? If you read the next verse, verse 7, he'd make it clear what he meant by the letter. But if the ministration of death, written and engraved in stones, was glorious. Now, we know what the letter is. It was the Ten Commandments. Now, he says the Ten Commandments were a ministration of death, and the law kills. The law never saved anyone. It'll kill you, friends, because it brings you into the judgment of God. It's the Spirit that giveth life. And you and I are living in this day when the Holy Spirit is the one that regenerates, the Holy Spirit leads us, and the Holy Spirit shows us the will of God. Now, let's follow through here. We have certain privileges now. And notice what he says, "...having therefore, brethren, boldness." And this is boldness of speech, "...to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus." Now, how do we get in there? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And when that veil was rent in twain, it was when Christ was crucified on the cross. And it indicated the way to God was open. Now, that ought to tell us something. The word here that is translated flesh, we are told here, a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say, his flesh, through his flesh. Now, that's the same word that you find in the prologue of John's gospel where he said the word became flesh. But he didn't say anything about a new and living way open to God. Because the incarnation, the life of Christ, saves no one. It is now based on the death of Christ, you see. 
It's through the veil, that is to say, as flesh, we enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, our right of entrance is through not his incarnation, but it was through the rending of the veil. And that veil was his flesh through his death. And you and I can only worship God through not the incarnation, or not through the life of Christ, but through the death of Christ for us on the cross. And friends, that's so important that I think I've said it now half a dozen times, and I think I'm going to say it another time, maybe several more times. Now, this is called here a new and living way. And that new is newly slain, newly slain. In other words, it speaks of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has opened up for you and me to God a new and living way, and that's through his crucifixion. That's through his death upon the cross, you see, newly slain. These old sacrifices, they just won't help you anymore, friends, at all. Now we come to something here that I feel, frankly, is very, very important indeed. And will you notice he mentions here that we have these privileges. Now he mentions another privilege, verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God. And that's a wonderful privilege that we have today, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Now, this is a great encouragement for us, and this is very practical now. We have this privilege, and this is an invitation not only to the saved, but to the unsaved here. And some believe it's primarily to the unsaved. I think it's to both, by the way. And this is through this new way, freshly slain. The sacrifice of Christ never becomes old. And Martin Luther made this statement concerning it. He says, It seems but yesterday that Jesus died on the cross. How wonderful. Now, through that veil, when Christ dismissed his spirit, the veil of the temple was torn in two. And you and I today have a high priest that's yonder at God's right hand for us. So what are we to do? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. And this has to do, the priests were dedicated in the Aaronic priesthood, the members of the tribe of Levi. Remember, Moses did that. He sprinkled on them water, and that was the water of dedication. And their bodies, you remember, he washed them. They had to be washed. And that denoted that they were set aside for the service of God. This is, I think, a very wonderful thing for us to note here, a dedication now unto God that enables us to draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. Now, this full assurance of faith 
or as some have put it, in fullness of faith, actually doesn't have anything to do with the amount of faith, but it has everything to do with the object of faith and that which is real faith, by the way. It's always the object of faith. Faith can be misplaced. You can put your faith in some individual down here and be disappointed. It's not just that you believe there's a God. That doesn't mean anything at all other than you're not an atheist. But it means that not only should you have a knowledge of it to know the way of righteousness, but that by faith you've acted upon it, real faith. That is, that you have actually received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Now, that's been made very clear to us. He came unto his own. His own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the right, the exousion power, to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more nor less than simply believe in his name. Now, faith in Christ is to receive Christ. That's what it means, to receive him. In other words, faith is action that's based on knowledge. God never asked you to take a leap in the dark. I disagree with that theologian who said faith is a leap in the dark. If it is, don't leap, friends. You may find yourself going off of a ten-story building. So don't leap in the dark. God has put knowledge. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. God has put down a foundation. No other foundation can any man lay that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You get on the foundation. That's knowledge. But it's faith that puts you there. Faith is action that's based on knowledge. And that means to trust Christ personally as your Savior. Now we're told here, let us then draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. That means that today you and I are a member of a priesthood. One of the great truths that John Calvin recovered was the priesthood of believers. Every believer is a priest, and you can come to God today with boldness of speech. So many people ask the preacher to pray for them, and they send in prayer requests. We follow them. We believe in it. But the thing I'm trying to say is you have access to God. You have as much right in God's presence as I have or anyone else because we come in the name of Christ today, and we can come by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's made this newly sacrificed way for us. And it's on that basis that we come to God. Now, we're told, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he's faithful at promise. Now, we are to draw near. Actually, faith here has the thought in it of hope. Let us draw near to God, but let us hold fast our confession of faith. Why? Because we've got a hope, and hope is for the future, you see. How wonderful this is. And we find now that we can come near to God and in the full assurance of faith. And also we can 
hold fast the confession of our faith. We have a hope. Why? Well, it's been put like this. So near, so very near to God, we cannot nearer be. For in the person of his Son, we are as near as he. So dear, so very dear to God, we cannot dearer be. For in the person of his Son, we are as dear as he. We are to draw near. We are to hold fast. Now, we have a third thing here. And let us consider one another to provoke. And we get our word paroxysm from that. And that literally means with a view to excitement. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good work. Do I annoy you? Some Christians write me and say, Oh, you have troubled my conscience. I hope I've troubled your conscience that you love one another and that you're troubled that you need to do some good works for God. And he says now, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much as we see the day approaching. If there ever was a time when believers need to come together and gather together, it's today. Instead of chopping each other down, why, we need to be drawn together in love around the person of Christ and exhorting one another and studying the Word of God together. Actually, God has something for a group that he'll not give to anyone individually. One of the reasons I like to teach the Word of God, and I'll let you in on something right now, and you won't tell anybody, I hope, I trust you won't. We'll keep this a secret to ourselves today, and I'm just telling you, you're the only ones I'm telling about this. And the reason that I like to teach the Word of God, because God won't let me grow in the knowledge of the Word unless I share it, you see not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. So when they have Bible study down at your church, be sure and be there, because there's a blessing there for you you can't get in studying the Bible by itself. Now we've got something here that's quite interesting. I have this in my notes. We're to draw near in faith. That is faith toward God. We're to draw near in hope. That's for ourselves, you see. We're to hold fast our profession. Draw near in love. That's for others. And so you have here faith, hope, and love again. How wonderful this is. And the day approaching actually, I think, meant here to these people, Hebrews, the destruction of the temple. The temple was to be destroyed. And then where are they going to meet? Well, they've been going to the temple. Even Peter and John went up to the temple They were there on the day of Pentecost, you know. And they went up there afterward. That the beautiful gate of the temple is where they met the impotent man. But where are you going to meet now? Well, what he's saying, as you see the day approaching, when you won't have a place, just keep meeting together. And the church started off meeting in homes, by the way. And why as they see the day approaching? Now, verse 26 is a verse that makes your hair stand on end. It's a rather frightful verse in many ways, and yet it's a warning. You see, it's one of the many danger signals 
conditions that God has put up. The peril of despising. And frankly, it is a verse that I personally feel like we ought to emphasize it more today. I'm going to read it now. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I think we emphasized before what Simon Peter said in 2 Peter 2.21. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Now, this is a warning he gives to these Hebrew believers because many of them were continuing to go to the temple. And some were actually offering sacrifice there. They were keeping up a front that they were still under the Mosaic law. And in so doing, they were making it also clear that the sacrifice of Christ was meaningless to them because to continue to offer these sacrifices, the sacrifices pointed to Christ. And now that he's come, it's all fulfilled. And what before was commanded now becomes sinning willfully because you know now that this sacrifice is fulfilled in Christ. But to continue to go on is a frightful, it's a terrible thing. It's to act as if the Lord Jesus has not come. It is to act as if this temple sacrifice is going on forever. And you can't look to the temple anymore because there's no more sacrifice for sin, no more sin offering for them. Because, you see, they had gone each year, or at least that, and some many, many times during the year, each time they'd sin, they could bring a sacrifice. Can't do that anymore. Because Christ now has come, and you have to look to him. And that is the thing that is important. The Word of God is very expressive in this connection for these people who had heard the way of righteousness to reject God's Son. It's a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. That is a tremendous thing. It is something that, as I've said, it cause your hair to stand on end. Now, I want to note something specifically here. When he says that we sin willfully, actually, it means to go on sinning willfully. And to offer the sacrifices is just to continue to go on sinning willfully. It doesn't mean they've committed are are responsible for committing the unpardonable sin. It's actually an attitude toward the Word of God that God calls willful rebellion. There's no more sacrifice in the Old Testament or the New Testament now for presumptuous sins. This is very important to see, friends, and we are emphasizing that. 
Now he goes on to say here that this is just a certain fearful looking for of judgment. You see, there's nothing between the cross of Christ and the coming of Christ but judgment. That's all. He's not going to do anything else. He's not going to die again. It's not necessary for him to. And now it becomes willful rebellion or disobedience on the part of those that would continue to go on with the temple worship and offering of sacrifices. Now, he makes a comparison. He says, "...he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses." The comparison is made, "...but of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite." under the Spirit of grace. Now, this is a frightful thing here that he's talking about. It says here, and I'd like to lift this out, wherewith he was sanctified, and that speaks of Christ, by the way, as the Son of God, and seeing they crucified of themselves the Son of God afresh, that is, it means to treat the death of Christ as inadequate to settle the sin question, and to go on as if he had not died. That's to treat the blood of Christ as something you despise. In other words, to know this now, the privilege creates a responsibility. He makes this tremendous statement here now, "...for we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people." And friends, God is going to judge. He's the sovereign ruler of this universe. And you are going to have to appear before him. The Lord Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. We are told again and again in Scripture, as we find here in verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, that's a very interesting expression. It's one that we need to look at, and I want to dwell on it for just a moment here. And I think that this is for Christians, and it's for unbelievers, too, because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's one thing to have the good hand of our God upon us for good. And this is quite an interesting little study. I refer you to Ezra, the seventh chapter, verse 9. This is what he wrote. For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. Now, the hand of God is upon this man for good. God wants to put his hand upon you for good. But sometimes he puts a very heavy hand upon those that are his children, and he chastens them. Or as we say, he takes them to the woodshed. I've been there. Maybe you've been there. And the very interesting thing is that David had been there too. 
And over in the 32nd Psalm, verse 4, now listen to him. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. Now, David was God's child. I mean, he was God's man. What was God doing? God was chastening him. God had taken David to the woodshed, and David was trying to cover up his sin. He had to confess it. He had to deal with that thing. And God's hand is sometimes upon those of us that are his children. But my friend, it's altogether different than to have the hand of God upon you for judgment. He's spoken of vengeance here. God doesn't take vengeance in a vindictive, spiteful manner. God judges, and God is going to judge sin. That's something that needs to be emphasized today. And again, will you listen to the psalmist? And I'm turning now to Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. And the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and he poureth out of the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth shall drain them and drink them. In other words, the prophets, as well as the psalmist, spoke a judgment as a time coming when the cup of wrath would be filled up. And it's filling up today. God's in no hurry to move. He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. But my friend, that cup of judgment is filling up. And I tell you, it's a better cup. That cup is the cup of judgment that's coming. And that's the thing that he's saying. If you despise what Christ has done for you on the cross, friends, there's nothing ahead but judgment for you. You have no hope whatsoever. And that's the point that he was making with these believers. Now, under the law, they could bring a sacrifice every year or every day if they wanted to, but no longer. That's over. You have to turn now to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gives them a rather personal word. Verse 32, "...but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated..." Ye endured great fight of afflictions. Now, I assume that these believers, to whom the writer here has in mind, they were saved, and there was no question in this man's mind, and I think it was Paul, that they were believers. Partly whilst ye were made a gazing stop, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds. And that's somebody in prison. It sure would fit Paul the apostle. And took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. That would fit some of the saints in Jerusalem. Knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Now, he speaks of this substance here. And I think that's very important for us to see. For ye had compassion of me, and ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance, that is, possession. And he's resting upon their past experiences, you see. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Don't cast away your confidence. Now, that's pretty important. And 
That's just another way of saying, let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, you see. Now, he moves on here. You have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Now, tribulation worketh patience, according to Paul. Verse 37, For yet a little while, and he shall come, will come, and will not tarry. Now, the Scripture says that the Lord will not tarry, that he's going to come. I hear this expression a great deal today. Well, I'll see you next time, Dr. McGee, if the Lord tarry. Well, I got news for you. He's not going to tarry. Some folk act as if he keeps putting off his coming, that he is tarrying. He's not. He's not going to tarry. It's on his calendar when he's going to come. And somebody says, well, what is it? Well, he won't let me see the calendar. We've got some folk here in Southern California. They think they've seen the calendar. But I think they've been looking at man's calendar because nobody's seen his, but he won't tarry. He's coming. That's as sure as his first coming to this earth. Now, he goes on to make this statement, verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Now, this is a quotation from Habakkuk, the second chapter, verses 3 and 4. This verse is a very important verse, and I'm not going to deal with it as we will when we get to the minor prophet Habakkuk, and we will. But it's quoted in Romans, it's quoted in Galatians, and it's quoted again here in Hebrews. And the emphasis in each one of these epistles is different. In the epistle to Romans, the emphasis is upon the just shall live by faith. It's how God justifies a sinner, and the emphasis is there. Now, the just shall live, and in Hebrews, it's the just shall live by faith. You see, we've had a reference several times to the living God. This epistle tells of a living intercessor that it was the same one who died on the cross for us, came back from the dead, and the emphasis is upon his resurrection, that he is the living Christ at God's right hand. And those that are his own, since we have a living God, we have a living Savior at God's right hand, we shall live by faith. That, as we've said before, it's no leap in the dark. It rests upon the Word of God. It's whether you believe God or not and whether you have the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart and in your life. The just shall live by faith. That's Hebrews. And then in Galatians, it's by faith. The just shall live by faith. And Paul emphasizes by faith there. Now he talks here about drawing back. He says, if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And then verse 39, but we are not of them who draw back under perdition. You see, Paul, if he's the right here, did not consider that they had drawn back. But he's speaking of the danger 
It's a warning he's giving. But we are not of them who draw back under perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And that word draw back means to take in sail. The believer is like a sailor who should let out all the sail. It's what he's been saying. Let us go on. And the thought here is that a believer could reef the sails. He could become stranded because of discouragement, because of trouble, because of persecution, because of hardship, because of depression, or some other stumbling block. But the thought here is, friends, since we have a living God, and today we have a living Savior, let's go on. Let's go on. Let's open up all the sails. Let's move out today for God. What a tremendous thing this was in the past to men and women. You remember the story of the French Huguenots. They were persecuted. They had been betrayed. And when France destroyed them, they destroyed the best of French manhood and womanhood. And France has never been the nation it was at the time that they destroyed the French Huguenots. When these French Huguenots went into battle, and they knew they were going into battle to certain death, you know what their motto was? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, we need something like that today in the life of believers. We have a lot of boo-hooing today among Christians, a lot of complaining, a lot of criticizing, a lot of finding fault, a bunch of crybabies, a bunch of babies that need to be birthed. Oh, my friends! The whole tenor and tone of this epistle has been, let's go on. Let's go on. Let's go on, friends.